Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So you may or may not have noticed, but it's been a while since we've appeared in your earphones. After the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, David McAtee, and far too many others. And in light of the historic protests that are still happening every day around the country, we at Urban have been truly reckoning with our work. We've been asking ourselves, are we doing enough to end racial injustice everywhere it's found, both in the larger world and in our own institution? And we've been wondering what to say and where to start as we move forward. And it's been true for Urban as a whole, and it's been true for those of us who work on this podcast. So we wanted to step back, take a pause. This week's New York Times list of best-selling books shows a country reading and really diving into race and racism. With titles like White Fragility, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and So You Want to Talk About Race, at the top of the list, it's clear that many want a deeper understanding of how the past continues to heavily influence the present for Black Americans. So the place that we thought felt right for the podcast was to take a step back from research and ask some of our colleagues what they're thinking about right now in this momentous time. Like, what are they reading and watching that may be providing them with some clarity and insight these days? First up, Alphonse Simon from Urban's Income and Benefits Policy Center. He's been reading a classic novel that's also been recently adapted into a movie about a couple's journey in Harlem amid deep racism and discrimination. One of my favorite books by James Baldwin, it's If Beale Street Could Talk, came out, I believe, like sometime in the 70s, and they just released a movie on it. I think it's a really good read. What's compelling about the book is that it's not just a story of Black Americans living through discrimination. It's a story of Black Americans trying to find love. It paints Black people as what they are, people who have multiple interests, and it's discrimination and uh, an unfair criminal justice system that prevents these people from achieving what we all want, which is love and uh, close relationships. So I think it really um, contextualizes what's happening to entire communities with what they desire and what we all want for ourselves. Um, that's what I really like about it. Alphonse said that there's one scene in the movie that really sticks with him. The story is about a black man who's wrongly convicted of a crime uh, and spent time in jail. And once he gets in, his girlfriend gets pregnant. So about a month in, she reveals to him he's pregnant. And throughout every like prison visitation scene, he's pretty calm, cool, and collective. But then there's one scene where he like finally breaks down and says, like, do you know what they're doing to me in there? And he, he finally like lets go and releases like his true raw emotion. So these people are trying to find love in an age of discrimination. But they're also trying to persevere through that discrimination, right? And 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 honestly, it just gets tiring. And I think I felt like him when he's broken down in the jail and said, Do you know what they're doing to us? Because that's kind of how I felt after. George Floyd and whatever, I felt like I've been persevering through a lot of these moments. And it seems that one was the one that just kind of collectively broke us. And we all had to express that kind of anger. This was kind of the breaking point where we had to express something very raw and human in our frustration. Alphonse said watching and reading this work has helped him remember that Urban's research needs to honor the human experience. We've been talking about what does it mean to have people at the true center of the research. And I don't think the book really gives the answer, but it does let you kind of meditate over how to think about people as like real agents 
in research. And it, it's just something to think about, like thinking about when you create a statistic on some kind of criminal justice reform or whatever, really thinking about each data point of one person who has a full, complex life and just having that like deep vision of like what a person's life can kind of change your research and can kind of help you avoid like aggregating experiences and just lumping people into categories, but really seeing people as unique agents. Aristotle Jones works in Urban's Justice Policy Center, and he's picked up three very different works of literature that help offer a really unique perspective on this moment. When quarantines first started, I picked up Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond to gain a better understanding of the history and causes of diseases and how they impact humanity. But then the protests began, and I picked up the Federalist Papers, you know, of course, by our three founding fathers, Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay. And I particularly looked at paper number 62 to gain a proper understanding of our country's founding principles, which then that led me to read finally, um, Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mumia Abu-Jamal, who I think at one point was considered the, like, the famous person on death row. Rather than seeing history in the present through the lenses of then and now, all of those books forced me to see our lives as a continuation to show me that we're all connected directly in, in some type of way. Aristotle said that a seminal work in American history has special resonance now. In Federalist Paper 62, James Madison writes that, you know, laws are made for the few and not the many. And then it clicks that if we continue to see this series of African-Americans, poor people being beaten killed or anything by the police, you understand that laws are made for the few and not the many, which is a really difficult thing to digest and almost difficult for Madison to write because when he writes it, he, he says he's, he's admitting this in a, in, a, in a way. So it blew my mind to, to read that. And the third book that Aristotle referenced comes from Mumia Abu-Jamal and asks the question, have Black lives ever mattered? I think that book is important because he asked this really, this question that everyone in America knows the answer to, but he gives us the answer through a historical analysis from the founding of America all the way through the Tamir Rice's and the Michael Brown's to, to show like the answer is no. But if we accept the truth and look at things at the root causes, maybe we can transform that question into a yes and to eventually get to the point of all lives mattering. I think acknowledging that the wound is there is the first step to getting to the you know, progress and then making efforts to help the wound. So I, I think that that's the first step that he points out and what I see as well as, as in a light of understanding for us to get to where we need to be. Next up, Michael Cohen from the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center. Michael looked back to a text written in the 1970s to provide insight to this moment. One thing that I've been going back to is the Kambahai River Collective statement. It's a collective of Black feminists, talks about a lot of what we think of today as intersectionality, but talking about the interlocking forms of oppression that folks are facing, particularly Black women, Black non-binary folks facing both systemic racism and sexism, and what that means for collective fights against those. The collective itself is named after the parade led by Harriet Tubman to free enslaved people. And so the collective itself formed out of a group of Black feminists who had been going to conferences, events, and sort of meeting and connecting with each other. And 
sort of finding that when they're in spaces focused on feminism, it was really feminism that centered white women. And so it wasn't really grappling with issues of systemic racism. And also finding that in civil rights spaces, there wasn't really a grappling with this long history of sexism and oppression that women were facing. And so it really formed out of the desire to address both of these things as the things that can't be sort of separated into different struggles, things that need to be thought of as sort of connected systems of oppression that, you know, Black women are facing and are grappling with, you know, both of these really deep issues at the same time. And Michael says the statement is a reminder to researchers to remember there are many interlocking, interdependent systems of discrimination that might affect research outcomes. I think sometimes we sort of get lost in the incredibly important work, but not sufficient work of outlining the sort of outcomes or what happened because of these disparities or, you know, focusing in on the sort of individualized experience of disparate outcomes. And I think what this statement really does and what thinking about some of the underlying sort of systems of oppression help do is give context to that data. And so I think it's really easy to see, you know, the disparities in access to affordable housing or housing burden or the disparities in educational outcomes and either attribute them to sort of individual solutions. Like if we could just help people get access to better education or help set up housing subsidies. And we lose sight of the sort of larger structures of oppression that, you know, create disparate outcomes, even, you know, for Black people who have achieved middle-class status or Black homeowners, you know, having disparate outcomes in terms of wealth generation due to their homeownership. And so I think, you know, being able to give larger context to some of that data to understand that, you know, some of these systems are like deliberately constructed. So how has the statement affected how Michael hopes to approach future research? In some ways, there's a sort of two-pronged approach to it, both in getting more granular and getting closer to people's actual experience, and in some ways getting to a higher sort of structural level. And then so I think the granular level of including qualitative data and analysis, employing community engaged methods. So being able to take the numbers to a community, interact with them, see what they think about, whether that what's showing up in the numbers is reflective of their day-to-day experience. If it is, why, what's creating these conditions, I think is incredibly important to doing the work in a, in a more connected way. I also think that digging into from the higher level perspective, from the structural perspective, is really about taking the time to understand what might be creating some of the conditions that you see in the quantitative data. Astonique Robinson, an intern in our Education Policy Center, is delving into the complexities of the criminal justice system. She's reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. So I've been reading that a bit more, which has been really interesting, especially as I just think about the state of America today. I've grown up with this idea of like, this is right, this is wrong. These are the things that are illegal. This is what you can go to jail for doing. This is what you can be arrested for doing. But I've never really interrogated why some things are illegal or criminal behavior and other things aren't. 
and why the laws have been written in the way that they were. One of Asenik's takeaways from the book is the problematic way we approach punishment in our country. One of the biggest ones in a lot of states being the inability to vote or or being stripped of your right to vote rather than a more restorative process that's like, here's something that you did that was maybe wrong or that doesn't align with what we see ourselves, what we see our identity as, as, as a country, and here's how we can rectify it. We just have a really punitive system, and it's so race-based that there's no way to look at it and think, oh, this just happened by chance. And so how has the new Jim Crow changed Astonique's approach to reviewing and analyzing education data sets? When we talk about test scores, when we talk about achievement, understanding that like even the school environment is such a different place for students of different races. So just keeping that in mind, every time I look at statistics, every time I look at test scores, every time I look at like any achievement measure, thinking about, okay, what was the actual school environment that these students were in that may have caused some of these things? And that's not only with policing, also just with teachers and and race more generally. I've been thinking a lot about like how we treat students in schools, especially elementary schools. I went to a high school in a suburban area, but I went to elementary school in a more urban area in New York City. And just the way that like behavior is dealt with in such completely different ways was interesting to me. And I think a lot of school districts across the country have been reimagining or rethinking what the role or purpose of policing in schools is or should look like. Books aren't the only source of insight when it comes to crime and criminal justice. Jacinth Jones on Urban's communications team has been watching documentaries that speak to why our country is in its fourth week of protests. One has been especially resonant. It's called Time, the Khalif Browder story, and it's a six-part docuseries available on Netflix. The series kind of recounts the story of Khalif Browder, who at the time was a 16-year-old boy who was imprisoned in Rikers Islands for three years without a conviction. And he spent nearly two of those years in solitary confinement. And then they talk about how he took his own life two years after his release in 2015 and how he was only 22 years old. He was put into Rikers because he was accused of stealing a backpack. And his family did not have enough money for his bail, which was set at $3,000. For someone who's never been involved in the criminal justice system or have done advocacy work for criminal justice reform, before watching this, I knew there was need for reform at a very, very basic level. But after watching the documentary, it blew my mind as to how a 16-year-old boy could just be placed in an adult prison and be tried as an adult and just go through so much mental and physical abuse in Rikers Island and just having to spend nearly two years in solitary confinement and how that really just pushed him to the edge once he was released. The series has made Jacinth think more about the approach to her work as communications coordinator at Urban. The documentary really helped me realize that sometimes people's downfall has nothing to do with their decisions. And it's not a personal choice, more so it's a reflection of society. And it's the systems and structures that are put in place that basically bring people to where they are at the moment. In regards to the blog post that I currently write for Urban, I really hope I'm able to accurately portray that and really emphasize that, no, this is not a personal decision. Like no one wants to be poor. No one wants to be uh, categorized as a locum individual but it's just more so of explaining how these structures are put in place. The system can't really 
work for us because it was never built for us in the first place. So it's really, really, really hard to break those chains that kind of really bound you to a specific place in society. At some point, we we have to stop blaming the individual and look at mm-hmm. the outside factors that contributes to an individual's quote unquote downfall. Next up, Jessica Perez from Urban's Research to Action Lab. She's reading a book that touches on some of those external factors that Jacinth talked about. I actually read this book called Worse Than Slavery by David Oshinsky. So essentially, the book gives you a premise about what our history looked like post-slavery. When we learn about post-slavery, we think about the Reconstruction era. I feel like even when you say Reconstruction, I feel like it's super sympathetic towards the Southern whites and how the eradication of slavery destroyed the economy of the South. Southern whites at the end of this, at slavery, were just trying to grasp on some semblance of like social order. And I think this book really does a good job kind of explaining what kind of policies were put in place and how our criminal justice system manifested and created a breeding ground for uh, racial disparities especially in the justice system, because it just gives you the real perspective and how law enforcement really played into convict leasing and how they really um, contributed to using Black bodies to build this country after slavery and exploiting Black bodies for free labor, which is something that we don't talk, talk about or learn about in our history classes. We just talk about the economics and how detrimental it was for white people, but we don't think about how Black bodies built this country. Jessica says worse than slavery has made her more critical of the work at Urban. Instead of thinking about structural racism as an afterthought, she thinks it should be centered in the very beginning. So I think we're very much rooted in evidence and understanding how things came to be. And we tackle like very difficult issues in terms of social and economics issues. And I think we just need to understand why certain systems manifested the way they did and why there is such disparities in our systems. And I think we can take such a good stance on that and exposing those disparities. So just being able to speak with different researchers and understand how they're diving into that research and just better understanding that work or how you make it part of the beginning instead of the end. Got room for one more recommendation? Fernando Hernandez in our Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population is reading an open letter about what it means to be Black in America. Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Very few books that actually pull a tear out of you, and that's the one, because that book is so beautifully written. It's a book about Ta-Nehisi Coates writing a letter to his child um, about what it is to be Black in America. Him growing up in Baltimore, him going to Howard, his friend that got shot out in Northern Virginia, chased by the cops all the way from Maryland. Books aren't tearjerkers to me, but this book is 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 an emotional ride. I learned that people get shot in Baltimore for just being black, that just Baltimore's a rough city because it's been broken down by the system, pushed by some systematic racism that is driving the decisions of policymakers to not beef up Baltimore. Baltimore is a black city as Washington was at one point. I didn't know a lot of those things, honestly. And my ignorance isn't justifiable, but it's the, it was there. I didn't know that these things happened in the black community. Book like Between the World and Me sets the stage for someone that wants to kind of go down that road to be able to learn how to empathize with someone else's experience, even if it is through, through words. 
Since reading ta book, Fernando says he started thinking about people behind the data and thinks numbers alone don't effectively convey the human experience. We need to be more conscious about race. We can't just leave it to reports and say like, okay, well, here's a a summary statistics table that just says like whites, blacks, Hispanics, and others. That's lazy. It's really, really lazy on our end. And we need to start thinking a lot more about what are some of the primary and secondary effects of these policies that we are analyzing on people of color, of communities of color. I don't think we're doing it justice. I worked in a lot of restaurants before coming into Urban, and I worked with a lot of folks that that story that I told you, the guy from walking from Guatemala was actually true. He walked from Guatemala because his family was being threatened by the Maras, and he came to the United States by foot. And now with COVID, he can't work. So what is Urban adding to understanding the hardships that these families that don't have access to institutions are going through? I mean, we're not just talking about the folks that lost their jobs. We're also talking about the children that are with them that probably don't have a decent access to school because they don't have a social security number. Statistics, of course, represent real people with real stories. And putting a face to the data can remind us of those involved. We're saying like Latinos, they're undocumented people, but we just treat it in such a synthetic way that we don't understand that these people are actually humans and that they actually deserve rights. The way that immigration laws work Our government is not letting these folks come into the institutions. And we as urban are not fighting that fight. We're not doing that fight. And it's really important for important swaths of the community. So those are some of the things that we're reading and watching and thinking about over here at Urban. You can see all of the recommended books, movies, and documentaries on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. And we'd urge you to explore some of these texts and documentaries and then think about what action you can take in your life to promote greater racial equity. Let's close with this final thought from Aristotle about how essential literature and art are right now. I think Working at a place like Urban, it allows me to have more thoughtful conversations with my coworkers so we can make it even and produce an even more intelligent, emotionally intelligent work environment to make an Urban a better place. And I think the last point of reading these books, it reminds me of my former art professor at Tuskegee, Bruce Phillips. He argues that art brings balance to our lives. And he's right so much because no one has survived quarantine or the protest without some form of art, let it be music, literature, cinema, photography, etc. So that's our show. Big thank you to Alphonse Simon, Aristotle Jones, Michael Cohen, Astonique Robinson, Jacinth Jones, Jessica Perez, and Fernando Hernandez. Again, you can see all of the recommended books, movies, and documentaries on our show notes page. That's www.urban.org slash critical value. Huge thank you to producers Katie Smith and Jacinth Jones. And of course, thanks as always to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our music is by Moby. On behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids who are now co-producers. I hope you love this podcast so much that you're going to tell all your friends, family, grandparents, and all the people you know. Goodbye. Goodbye.